Welcome to Two-Way Street. I'm Bill Nygut. Today we're talking about one of the biggest sensations in the history of American theater, Hamilton, an American musical, which has finally arrived at Atlanta's Fox Theater. How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman, dropped in... Hamilton first opened at New York's Public Theater in February 2015. It was an immediate sensation, selling out every performance. Founded father without a father, got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter by 14. Eighteen months later, the show moved to the Richard Rogers Theater on Broadway and quickly became the hardest ticket in town. It became even tougher to see after Hamilton was showered with awards in 2016. A record 16 Tony nominations and 11 wins. A Grammy Award for Best Recording of a Cast Album. The crowning achievement came when Hamilton was awarded the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. And he wrote his first refrain, a testament to his pain. Well, the word got around, they said this kid is insane, man. Took up a collection just to send him to the mainland. Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done. But just you wait, just you wait. When he was ten, his father split full of it. Dead, ridden two years later, see Alex and his mother bedridden, half dead, sitting in their own sick, the scent thick. By now, everyone knows the story of what inspired Lin-Manuel Miranda to write Hamilton. He read Ron Chernow's biography of the Founding Father while he was on vacation and decided it carried the seeds for a new way to look at the journey of the Founding Fathers. And of course, Miranda decided that hip-hop was the best way to bring the story to life for audiences today. I know what the founders look like. They're on our money, they're on Mount Rushmore, they're everywhere. So I was thinking, what would they sound like? Um, what would they sound like in this telling? If, if Hamilton's our first hip hop artist, what does everyone else sound like? So even as I was reading the Chernow book for the very first time, I was never picturing the literal founding fathers. Mm. I was thinking, what's the hip hop R&B voice that matches Hercules Mulligan? Which is a great rapper name by the way, <laughs> on its own terms. Um, what's the, what's, what artist captures the soulful moral authority of George Washington? In my head, it was sort of a mix between Common and John Legend. Thousands of Georgians will now finally have their chance to see Hamilton the Musical at the Fox. But long before most of us had that opportunity, the best we could do was listen to the score and perhaps read the Chernow biography. Back in 2016, the Two-Way Street team decided to showcase the music and history of the show. We invited David Sahat, an associate professor of history at Georgia State University who writes on American intellectual, political, and cultural life, and Rick Lombardo, the chair of the theater department at Kennesaw State University, who has a long history as an artistic director at highly regarded American regional theaters, to join us for a conversation about the show. 
David, uh, as someone who has been teaching history for some time now, it must be rather thrilling for you to watch this explosion of interest in a guy who maybe you could say was one of the less well-known of the founding fathers until not long ago, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. I have, I'm not in the theater world, but I have friends who are actually texting me lines from the, the, the various songs, you know, <laughs> like, check this out, he says this. And, and that's at the point at which I realized this is a real phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to go through the show and talk about it both from an artistic point of view and uh, also from a historical uh, point of view. And Rick, let me, let me start, if I can, with uh, the theater side of this mm-hmm. story. He had this enormous hit with his show, In the Heights. Correct. Which was about Spanish uh, New York, essentially, about, mm-hmm. about Spanish neighborhood in, in New York. Life in the South Bronx. Right. And he used rap in that show as well, as, in, addition to, in addition to a lot of Latino rhythms. He used rap. So clearly this has always been, as an artist, where he lives. What I think is remarkable about Lin-Manuel is that he also is a true Broadway baby in a sense, you know, if you if I can use that term, because he is so steeped in the tradition of the American musical theater. So while he's in his songs, he's referencing all of these incredible rap and hip hop artists and using motifs from some really well-known songs. And at the same time, when you listen to the score, he's doing things like referencing Sondheim moments, and he's doing things referencing things that go back to Oklahoma. Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the very model of a modern major general for George Washington. <laughs> okay, but but let's back up again a step, because yeah. here he is. He's got this huge hit in, in the Heights. He also is starring in that show, as he does in Hamilton. And he goes on vacation to Mexico, and he takes along, David, a book that you've read, too. What does he take on vacation? Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton, which is a remarkable biography. It's also a big book. It's like an 800-page book. book. But he takes this book with him. Chernow, I think it's fair to say, has this remarkable ability to take historical figures. He certainly did it with Hamilton, and then he did it later with George Washington. He humanizes them in a way that other biographers just aren't quite as adept at doing, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So you can imagine why Miranda would be so excited as he reads this book. Yeah, and you know, he's, he's spoken about what he sees as this notion of someone who begins as an outsider, who comes from an island. An immigrant? An immigrant, and you know, Lin-Manuel is Puerto Rican, so his family comes from an island. That he could that he could see that what this brings to the creation of a kind of American identity because we're ultimately we we are all we're a nation of immigrants right and to find a way to to explore that theme through both the style of music and the style of lyric writing that he chose but also to tell this story of of who really owns the founding myth of America. One of the things that's remarkable about the show is that he has not chosen the lily white American history route. His cast is f- a diverse cast. Aaron Burr is played by an African American actor. Lin Manuel Miranda himself is of Hispanic background. And he said this. He said, our cast looks like America looks now, and that's intentional. It's a way of pulling you into the story and allowing you to leave whatever cultural baggage you have about the founding fathers 
at the door. We're telling the story of old dead white men, but we're using actors of color, and that makes the story more immediate and more accessible to a contemporary audience. Does that resonate with you, David, or as a teacher of history, do you find that that's somehow um, changing history? I'm not sure what I feel about that, because one of the things about the past is that it's very different. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of laud the, the inclusive impulse that he has, but this was an era in which to become a new state, you had to have 60,000 white men. That was, that was the rule. Not black men, not Indians, white men. And I, I kind of worry that telling a story of, uh, of, of, of white men with actors of color kind of effaces the deeply racist past. Yes, but I actually think there's a there's actually a, a deeper um, impact of of the way the show is cast. You know, for years in the the American theater, we talked about the notion of quote unquote colorblind casting, and I remember being in a uh, a meeting in the mid '90s where August Wilson stood up and said, "I don't want any of you in the American theater to do colorblind casting. I want you to always remember that I am a man of color." Every time we are confronted with seeing George Washington being played by an actor of color, we are reminded that that would have been impossible because of the systems and the the disenfranchisement that was in place at the time. So I think it actually forces us to consider those questions constantly. We can't sit back and forget those ideas of privilege. Um, I think it allows us to remember that the creation of America— is owned by everyone, not just not just by the white men who were given the power. David, I'm not sure the creation of America was owned by everyone, though. I think it was um, that that uh, the United States has gradually become more inclusive by struggle and by fight. And you know, you don't see Washington whipping his slaves, for example. And that would be a kind of reminder of, uh, of, of the past in a way that seeing Washington played by a black man, um, I, I'm not sure that it does immediately call up the, um, the kind of the racist So Miranda, I think, would pr- – here's what I think, yeah. speculate, Miranda might say about that. Perhaps the founding of the country wasn't owned by everyone, but the idea of America is now owned by everyone. And therefore, Mm -hmm. seeing this diverse cast on stage reflects that the idea of America may have arrived, not completely, but we're in a better place than we were. Yeah? He wants to humanize the founding generation, right? But to humanize them means to not treat them as symbols. And in essence, if you take the founding generation and you have them played by a non-white cast, you're treating them as, as a kind of a symbol for the United States. And I'm, I'm not sure that that I – don't, I don't think you can have it both ways. Either they're human beings who lived at a particular point in time and had deep flaws, or they're symbols, in which case you could do what you wish with them. It's a fascinating question. You know, Miranda's even gone further and said, well, well in the current production, there are – moments in the ensemble that are also gender neutral, right? Men and women both right. play soldiers in the ensemble. Uh, he said in future casting, because this show's going to run forever, first of all, <laughs> so there's going to be a lot of people coming in and out of this company, that there's certainly going to be an opportunity and no reason why some of those roles that are men historically would be played by women in future productions. Also, so the, the question of representation 
And privilege, I think, is something that he just wants us to constantly be thinking about as we're watching the show. We have a lot more to talk about as we continue our conversation about the Broadway mega-hit Hamilton, and we'll play a lot more of the music from the show, too. We'll be back in a minute with our guests Rick Lombardo and David Sahad. Welcome back to Two Way Street. If you're just joining us, we're talking about one of the biggest sensations in musical theater history, Hamilton, an American musical, which has just landed at the Fox Theater. My guests are David Sahat. He's an associate professor of history at Georgia State University, and Rick Lombardo. He's the chair of the theater department at Kennesaw State. We recorded this conversation in April of 2016, right after Hamilton won the Pulitzer Prize for drama, but it's as relevant today as it was then. I want to play some more of the music from the show as we go along. Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr were early on friends and compatriots in the revolution, right? Right. Yeah, and they were both from New York, but they be, they quickly became political rivals, and their rivalry became personal in, in a variety of ways, and they slowly began to drift into active animosity uh, with Hamilton, distrusting Burr with good reason as uh, unprincipled, as someone who is dangerous and out only for himself and who should be resisted at all costs. So let's listen to the way Miranda depicts the first meeting of Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. That depends. Who's asking? Oh, sure. Sir, I'm Alexander Hamilton. I'm at your service, sir. I have been looking for you. I'm getting nervous. Sir, I heard your name at Princeton. I was seeking an accelerated course of study. When I got sort of out of sorts with a buddy of yours, I may have punched him. It's a blur, sir. He handles the financials. You punched the bursar. Yes, I wanted to do what you did, graduate in two and join the revolution. He looked at me like I was stupid. I'm not stupid. So how'd you do it? How'd you graduate so fast? It was my parents' dying wish before they passed. You're an orphan. Of course, I'm an orphan. God, I wish there was a war. Then we could prove that we're worth more than anyone bargained for. Can I buy you a drink? That would be nice. While we're talking, let me offer you some free advice. Talk less. What? Smile more. Huh. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. I really wanted to take the song to that great moment when Aaron Burr says to Alexander Hamilton, hey, let me tell you something, talk less, smile more. And you know what? Um, that really does reflect Alexander Hamilton, as Miranda points out. He's just always talking, always thinking words. It, it's, so, it's so clear what comes across in the show, what he thinks about the way Hamilton's mind works. That he is obsessive, he is compulsive. The fact that he that he wrote as much as he wrote in his lifetime, that he was a man of words, that he could n- seemingly never turn it off, and the way the way Lynn raps Hamilton is this constant stream of language that keeps wrapping around itself. And in the American theater, we talk about Stephen Sondheim, and of course we know historically his love of crossword puzzles and all kinds of puzzles and games and the intricacy of his mind and the way he would rhyme. And 
to 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 come upon the next generation um, with Lin Manuel and and taking where what Sondheim was doing and now wedding it with absolutely contemporary music that could be on the radio. You know, in a sense, it goes all the way back to the origins of Broadway because Broadway, you would do a Broadway show and you would spawn three or four or five pop hits and everybody would cover them and they would become top 40 radio. Somehow we got away from the notion of Broadway and pop being really, really, really wedded. David, uh, that song does really set up what's going to be a big rivalry. Yeah, It's interesting. When I read Hamilton, I, I don't actually find him that elegant of a writer. He's not as good as Jefferson, for example, or Thomas Paine. But one of the things about Hamilton, Hamilton is he seems to believe that if he just, if he thinks everything through, if he takes a position, he'll be able to persuade people. Uh, and, and, and they'll just sort of come along to his side. And, and Burr was just so deeply unprincipled that that, that single line captures everything. What, explain more about Burr as an unprincipled figure. I mean, it's hard to say what he stood for other than himself. He was on kind of whatever side of the issue he wanted. And this was a very complicated political time, and there were shifting uh, alliances throughout. And Hamilton was always on, on one side, and Jefferson was always on another side. Burr was on whatever side he thought would work for so him. So Hamilton was uh, believed in federal government. He believed in the power of a federal government, uh, number one. Jefferson, not so much. He wanted the states to have authority and the federal government to really be a minor instrument. Isn't that the first um, way in which we see the contrast between them? Yes. And they also had different visions of the nation uh, more broadly. Hamilton wanted a a commercial merchant-based society that was committed to industrialization. Jefferson wanted an agricultural society that uh, imported... He was a Southerner. Yeah, he was a Southerner. Rick, um, we talked a bit about the fact that one of the things Miranda accomplishes here is he gives us this sense of the youthfulness of these people we call the founding fathers, but these were young men Mm -hmm. with lots of energy and um, passion about their cause. And, and of course, the song that really uh, tells us that first is um, one of the most popular songs, I think it's fair to say, from the show, My Shot. Isn't that mm-hmm. pretty yeah. much a standout number? Yeah, and, you know, it's it's fascinating because it's also such a New York song. <laughs> yeah, it is. Because <laughs> be, being a New Yorker, you just feel the energy of the streets, and he's so clearly using the New York of, of the 18th century, but also clearly referencing the New York of now, and also using the the this light motif of my shot and everything that that means because of the duels in the show as well as opportunity as well as the war it's this you know he he never uses a word to mean one thing which is you know really wonderful for an audience to lean forward and be able to 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 think about every lyric that comes their way and and we are going to hear him hamilton say i am not going to miss my opportunity we are going to seize the moment i am not thrown away my shot I am not throwing away my shot. Hey, yo, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. I'ma get a scholarship to King's College. I probably should brag, but dag, I'm amazed and astonished. The problem is I got a lot of brains, but no polish. I gotta holler just to be heard with every word. I drop knowledge. I'm a diamond in the rough, a shining piece of coal. Trying to reach my goal, my power of speech, unimpeachable. Only 19, but my mind is older. These New York City streets get cold. I shoulder every bird in every I don't have a gun to brandish, I walk these streets famished. The plan is to fan this spark. 
that runs independently. Meanwhile, Britney keeps... Lin-Manuel Miranda. That really captures it, doesn't it, David? That is such a terrific song. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You'll be singing it for hours after you leave <laughs> the studio. Will. We all yeah. will. It's also the bravura of, of rap music, you know, using, using the whole... That, that ethos that's part of rap culture, the rap battle, mm-hmm. the who's who's the one that's going to come out on top uh, through the sheer power of, of their use of words, mm-hmm. and then using that, and using that as also a part of the energy of the revolution, I think is a, just a crazy, brilliant leap that he made. Exactly who was Alexander Hamilton, and what was he all about? He was... An immigrant lawyer who had married into a good family and who uh, had visions for himself and his and his country, and he uh, pursued those visions through very strategic alliances, most especially with George Washington, and uh, and he had a vision for the greatness of the nation and then of himself within the nation. Yeah, I mean, as opposed to Aaron Burr. Hamilton truly did have a vision, a philosophical vision right. that he was passionately committed to. He certainly had individual personal ambition as well, yeah. but at least it was married to a true vision that he wanted to fulfill for the country. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, if you go back and you read, as I've done, uh, his, his uh, memos about, about uh, his financial vision for the nation, he pretty much single-handedly put the United States on a financial footing that uh, led to its greatness. And, um, and he saw very clearly that the United States could be an economic powerhouse if it uh, channeled all its resources effectively, and he uh, made sure that it did so. Um, one of the uh, <laughs> really funniest characters in Hamilton, uh, Rick, is uh, King George the Third, who, who makes several appearances singing uh, in the show, uh, appears magically on stage from the distance of London, <laughs> and and played by the only white performer in the show. <laughs> and tell us about who's playing the role because the performance is so wonderful. Just to even listen to on the yeah, soundtrack. So, so it's Jonathan Groff, and you know we know him certainly from Glee recently, but uh, he also created the role of Melchior in the original production of Spring Awakening. Spring Awakening. So, uh, which, you know, we, we should probably talk about how Hamilton is on some continuum with Rent, Spring Awakening, and now Hamilton is a show of a generation. But, but what Jonathan does here, I think is, and what Lynn does is sort of brilliant, in much the way that uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, dealt with the character of Herod in Jesus Christ Superstar of taking this historical figure that uh, we may think of as a certain way and then completely turning that on its head, both by what they sing about and the style in which they sing. Well, he certainly does that with King George's songs. Um, <laughs> am I right to say that there's a little of Boy George in these numbers? <laughs> yeah, we're, do- we're definitely dealing with some British pop here. Okay, let's yeah. listen to King George's first appearance on stage. You say... The price of my love is not a price that you're willing to pay. You cry in your tea, which you hurl in the sea when you see me go by. Why so sad? Remember we made an arrangement when you went away. Now you're making me mad. Remember despite our estrangement, I'm your man. You 
Third, <laughs> reminding the Americans yeah. that, uh, that he's he's the boss. He later the lyric and he loves them to death. Yeah, and what is he? And the lyric in the other, the second time around, he says, "I'll kill your friends and family to remind you of my love." Yes. That's terrific. <laughs> Doesn't strike me that that song, regardless of the fact that he sings it like a British pop star, is out of keeping with what King George felt about the American <laughs> colonies. Well, you know, it's interesting because he, he, what he's taken is a historical episode of, of empire and power and transposed that into the, a kind of a relational language, you know. And that's, that's part of the, the genius of the show and also, I think, part of the historical discomfort that I have with it because he's playing with it. And I like the playing with it except when it goes in a direction that I kind of worry plays with it too much. And I can't tell if that's just me being a kind of historical killjoy or, uh, <laughs> or, or, or what. You know, that's a fascinating question because when, whenever an artist takes a historical figure and chooses to then make something uh, based on their life, they're going to tell the story that they really have set out to tell. They, right. they want to tell a story. They're going to use this individual as a vessel, you know, whether, yeah. you know, not doing a biopic, if, if you will. But Lin-Manuel has, has clearly his own window into Hamilton, what it means to him, what he, what he wants to say about the now. Mm-hmm. I don't think that this show would be, willing to, would be winning the Pulitzer or having the impact that it has right now, Bill, if we weren't in a very unique and particular political moment in our country with a, a country with a very, very split national identity where we are debating daily, what is our identity? What does it mean? Who, who owns the American story? What, what is, do we even agree anymore on what the American myth or founding is? And I think this, the fact that the show is asking all these questions, throwing all the cards in the air, people are hungry to engage in this, in this dialogue, I think. My guests today are Rick Lombardo, the chairman of the Kennesaw State University Theater Department, and Georgia State Associate History Professor David Sahat. We're going to take a break now, but as we do, let's listen to another song from Hamilton. This one introduces the Schuyler sisters. They were daughters of a prominent New York political leader who was a general in the Continental Army. Hamilton married Eliza Schuyler, but it's historical fact that he and Eliza's sister Angelica carried on a long flirtation. As you'll hear, Miranda wrote the sister's songs in the style of Destiny's Child. Welcome back to Two Way Street. I'm Bill Nygut. Today we're talking about Hamilton, the American musical. The show has just opened in Atlanta, and so we thought it was a good time to revisit a program we presented about Hamilton back in April of 2016. 
Our guests were David Sahat, an associate professor of history at Georgia State, and Rick Lombardo, the chair of the theater department at Kennesaw State. One of the things that Hamilton was most adamant about was creating a federal bank. Why? Uh, The federal bank was a way to take uh, money that you got through tariffs and then channel it in directions that you wanted, uh, that he wanted to go in order to develop the nation. And in particular, he thought, you take this money, you have a bank, you loan it to merchants, and then they can build businesses, and you can have a merchant-based, industrialized uh, kind of economy. So it was, a, it was a kind of a mechanism of economic control at a time when there was no mechanism of economic control. Went completely along with his thinking that the federal government should be a powerful force exactly. in, in, in life as opposed to letting the states take control. People like Jefferson, and especially Southerners, opposed this idea because they did so adamantly believe uh, that uh, they should have control of their lives, right? Well, also, what it did was it it, it enriched a merchant class and not the agriculturalists. And and to Hamilton, he said, well, that's that's just how it works. That's how you develop an economy. And that this will eventually benefit the agriculturalists because you have a kind of robust reciprocal relationship. But Jefferson simply did not buy that. If you are going to set up a battle of ideas between (laughs) Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, how should Miranda do that, Rick? (laughs) Well, if if I were writing a rap musical, I'd have to write a rap battle, wouldn't I? A rap battle. (laughs) Um, It's, you know, it's, it's it's these powerful competing ideas, and it's going to be the, the, the power of your argument, Right. Um, which is going to come across in the power of your performance and presentation, both lyrically and musically. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Let's listen to the beginning of the first cabinet battle that we're going to hear in the show. Are you ready for a cabinet meeting? The issue on the table, Secretary Hamilton's plan to assume state debt and establish a national bank. Secretary Jefferson, you have the floor, sir. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We fought for these ideals, we shouldn't settle for less. These are wise words, enterprising men quote them. Don't act surprised, you guys, cause I wrote them. Ow, but Hamilton forgets. His plan would have the government assume state debt. Now place your bets as to who that benefits. The very seat of government where Hamilton sits. Not true. Oh, if the shoe fits, wear it. If New York's in debt, why should Virginia bear it? Uh, our debts are paid, I'm afraid. Don't tax the South, because we got it made in the shade. In Virginia, we plant seeds in the ground. We create. You just want to move our money around. This the cabinet that's, that's rep awesome. battle. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> you know, David, it is amazing. The ideas that are packed into such a short amount of time in the lyric of a song that he's yeah, able to yeah. accomplish. Yeah, that would take me about 30 minutes to unpack all that before With a an class. undergraduate class. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a remarkable performance. And again, I'm having this con- continued ambivalent reaction to it. It is substantively so interesting. Uh, and then to put it in the form of a rap battle is, is, is also so interesting. But it's, you know, rap and hip hop is the vernacular uh, of, of protest. It's a kind of it's a musical idiom of critique and of the dispossessed. And it, it's a little weird for me to hear <laughs> Jefferson, you know, uh, rapping. I think that's one of the points I, that he makes with this show is that sort of thing. Um, you know what, David, you've opened the door that I think we'll, we'll keep telling the story of the history. But Rick, this is a really wonderful opportunity to talk for a minute about 
people's feelings that this is a transformative moment in musical theater history. Do you agree with that? Um, well, I think it's a part of a continuum of many transformative moments in okay. musical theater history because I think musical theater as a genre has never been um, something that's set in stone. The wonderful thing about musical theater is that it, it'll it glom onto whatever's going on in the culture musically, whatever, you know, we, we it just borrows and grabs and grabs. Oscar Eustace's public theater, where the show was, was originally created before it went to Broadway, also created Hair, which was an upheaval in musical theater and sent it to Broadway, also created a chorus line, which was an upheaval in musical theater and sent it to Broadway. So it's it's part of, a, I think, a continuing reinvention. So uh, speaking of the public theater and the old days, let's listen to the first uh, rock musical, which debuted at the public theater. It's not for lack of bread. Like the grateful dead, darling. Gimme head with hair, long beautiful hair, shining. Hair, 1967, I want to say. I'm pretty amazed that you had that track ready to go. I knew you were coming. about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and again, there was a show that at a time, you know, again, the country is in upheaval. Right. Um, there is this incredible debate about the Vietnam War. Musical theater writers come along, Galt McDermott, and they create this show that speaks to the moment, that uses contemporary pop music to say something. And a young cast of highly energized, right. athletic performers. And I think that Rent does that again in the, in the 90s. What show? Rent. No, you, we have that one too. How do you document real life when real life's getting more like fiction each day? Headlines, breadlines, blow my mind, and now this deadline, eviction or pay. You think about, again, a very, very young writer um, who was trying to reinvent what the Broadway... That was his, that was his mission. He said... I want to reinvent, I want to bring real rock music to Broadway. He was rebelling in a bit, sort of the way the punks rebelled against what rock became in the in the late 70s, early 80s. He was rebelling against, if you will, the Andrew Lloyd Webber version of rock music on Broadway um, and said, no, we're going to do real rock, we're going to do it hard, and we're going to tell stories. And he was telling the story of his friends, these bohemian artists. Junkies who York. lived in the yeah. village. Um, at the, and again, politically at the time of AIDS, at the time of crack on the streets, at the time when uh, it was impossible to be able to live in Manhattan if you were a struggling artist. They all lived, they, most of the main characters were junkies who were HIV positive yeah. and they were squatters. The, the whole concept yeah. of rent is that they didn't. Hey, it. <laughs> yeah, this is actually my era as a young artist in New York City. This was this was this was my time. So um, I felt that Jonathan was writing about my artist friends and I. You know, he was writing for us, and I'm sure the generation right now that listens to Hamilton, and I can speak to this because every day I walk down the hallways, our theater majors and our musical theater uh, performers specifically, and Hamilton is so the show of this generation and. Uh, few weeks back, the Broadway company was starting to do auditions for the national tours and replacements, and they came to Atlanta. 
And the casting director sent me an email and said, hey, we're going to be casting in Atlanta. Would you let folks know? And I posted it on our on our Facebook site for the university for our students. And there was I could almost hear the explosion in the hallway <laughs> that they were going to be able to have auditions for Hamilton. So it's. It, it's a, it is one of those shows that comes along and becomes the show of a generation. You may be happy to hear this, David. I was reading a comment online by a, by a mom who said, you know, my 12-year-old daughter and I, we have listened to Hamilton every time we get in the car. We both know every lyric. Now we are reading the 800-page Ron Chernow <laughs> wow. biography of yeah. Hamilton. So yeah. um, it, it is having that kind of impact. The uh, show uh, deals with a couple of other incidents that are worth our uh, talking about, I think, uh, from a historic point of view, David. There's a song in the show called The Reynolds Pamphlet, and it deals with what was, I believe, the first open sex scandal (laughs) of an American political leader, yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, I mean, Hamilton had an affair with Maria Reynolds. She came to him to complain that her husband was mistreating her. Right. And then and they then ended up him. having an affair. She mm-hmm. seduced she him. She deduced him. And then he, uh, the, she turned around and, and began to blackmail him. Hamilton's political opponents found out that he was um, sending money to her, thought he was uh, engaging in embezzlement or corruption, criticized him. And so he wrote this pamphlet essentially saying, this is what happened. I wasn't, I wasn't embezzling money. I was just having an affair. And, and paying, uh, I think, the husband right, of, exactly. uh, to, to allow the affair to continue. You know, what's fascinating about that, David, is this is an example of how self-destructive Hamilton could be in a couple ways, I think. Not only that he would enter into this affair, but then that he would feel that he could use his words to write his way out of it. And all it did was make his situation even worse. We want to go back and make it sort of like a, you know, Bill Clinton kind of moment. Uh, but it, it, the problem was not moralism. It wasn't that he was having an affair. The problem was that he brought his private life into the public and that that was a violation of the honor code. When the Reynolds pamphlet becomes public, here's the response. The Reynolds pamphlet. Have you read this? Alexander Hamilton had a torrid affair, and he wrote it down right there. Highlights. The charge against me is a connection with one James Reynolds. For purposes of improper speculation, my real crime is an amorous connection with his wife for a considerable time with his knowing consent. I had frequent meetings with her, most of them in my own house. At his own house. At his own house. Mrs. Hamilton with our children being absent on a visit to her father. No. The problem was there, there wasn't the kind of evangelical vote at this point in time as there is, uh, is now. This was before the Second Great Awakening. And so the, the, the kind of the moralism of the contemporary moment or even before, that didn't exist then. It was purely you keep your private affairs private. Yeah, I think what, what's interesting about the way Lin-Manuel treats this in the show and how it functions from a dra- dramatic point of view is that um, he clearly wants us to see this character as a flawed human being. He is, in fact, he has, he has hubris, he has his blind spots, um, he has his pride, he has his overweening ambition, all those classic aspects of the tragic hero, if you will, so that he becomes relatable 
I think for the for the theater goer to sit down and go this yeah this 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 is a show a three hour and it is a very long show right this is a three hour show about Alexander Hamilton but it's also a show in which I can actually empathize with a person who is as flawed as we all are. So let's turn to uh, to the undoing well to the incident that led to his uh, death in a duel. So he and Aaron Burr really completely fall apart over the election of 1800. John Adams running against Thomas Jefferson, right? Right. With Aaron Burr as Jefferson's running mate. Right. Okay. But the way the Electoral College worked in those days, there was no differentiation between a presidential candidate and a vice presidential candidate. John Adams fell out of the picture immediately. But Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr had the same number of votes. And the question became, who would actually be president of the United States? Do I have that right? You have that right. And Aaron Burr should have, according to the kind of rules of politics, bowed out and given it to Thomas Jefferson, because that was the agreement all along. And that is exactly kind of an indication of Burr's unscrupulous character, is that he refused to do that. And then Hamilton began to work behind the scenes to elect Jefferson, whom he despised, because he thought, well, Jefferson I don't like, but Burr would be a a disaster. This began a course that led all the way up to 1804, I think. There was a, no, there was a speech that that Hamilton gave denouncing uh, Burr in a kind of private setting, and then this got to Burr, and it was published. Uh, someone made reference to his remarks, and Burr was offended, and then challenged him to a duel. <laughs> this sounds like contemporary politics. <laughs> <laughs> and so, because duels are a theme in the show. Of course, there's a song. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's the Ten Dual Commandments. It's the Ten Dual Commandments. Number one. The challenge demands satisfaction. If they apologize, no need for further action. Number two. If they don't, grab a friend. That's your second. Your lieutenant. When there's reckoning to be reckoned. Number three. Have your seconds meet face to face. Negotiate a or negotiate a time and place. This is commonplace, especially between recruits. Most disputes die and no one shoots. So they met. Do you know the details of the uh, duel by any chance? I do. Uh, Hamilton, they, they paced off. Hamilton pointed his gun in the air and discharged, which was a perfectly honorable thing to do. You did the duel, but you made no attempt to uh, kill the other person. Uh, Burr, in keeping with his uh, general nature, did not discharge in, in the air. He pointed the gun at Hamilton and shot him to death. I, I think it's also important to point out about this song that Lin-Manuel is doing again. One of One of the things that he does where he's talking about the period and he's talking about present day yeah um because these are also the rules of how gangs of the street come together right to deal with a dispute it's absolutely about another time and place as well I, it's a brilliant use of that kind of um, juxtaposition we're uh, coming to the end of our time so let me if i may ask each of you a final question david um what is the legacy of alexander hamilton as a real figure in history uh, I would say his central legacy, He, if, if anybody should be on the $10 bill or on any currency, it is Alexander Hamilton, because he is the one who almost single-handedly placed the United States on a path 
to uh, economic ascendancy. And uh, whatever success occurred over the 19th century can be traced in some measure back to Hamilton. Because I think the, the, the legacy of Hamilton, the musical, is, it, is it's begun this very interesting conversation about the American past, about uh, the present, how the past informs the present, and really how we conceive of ourselves as a nation. <laughs> Rick, Stephen Colbert had Lin-Manuel Miranda on his show some time ago. And uh, as they were talking, Colbert said, "How I would have never thought that a show about Alexander Hamilton would have me crying at the end. And he's referring to the whole story arc. But he's also referring very specifically to the closing number of the show, yeah. who tells the story. Yeah. And What's the importance of that song? Well, of course, it's asking us, as you know, David, the question of history is who gets to tell history mm-hmm. and who gets lost in that retelling for whatever various political or social reasons they do. You know, what's, what's fascinating about the Colbert quote, I would say the reason that he was crying is because it's not the story. It's the way the storyteller chose to tell the story. What devices do you use? What words do you use? What episodes do you choose? How do you position it um, to craft um, the audience's journey over the two or the three hours? And what Lin-Manuel has done leads to this final song. It brings up the question of how do we tell stories? Rick Lombardo. Thank you so much for being with us today. David Sahad, it's been a pleasure to have you here as well to talk about this remarkable, remarkable show, Hamilton, the Pulitzer Prize winner for drama this year, written both the lyrics, the music, and the book, all three, and starring Lin-Manuel Miranda. Let's listen to a little bit of that final song from Hamilton, Who Lives, Who Dies?, Who tells your story? Let me tell you what I wish I'd known When I was young and dreamed of glory You have no control Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? President Jefferson, I'll give him this His financial system is a work of genius I couldn't undo it if I tried And I've tried Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? President Madison One of the things that makes that song so moving is that it gives us a glimpse of what an exceptional person his wife, Elizabeth, was. She outlived her husband by 50 years. After his death, she moved to New York, where she became a founder and director of the Orphans Asylum Society. She personally took in a young orphan boy named Henry McCavitt. His parents had been killed in a fire. She paid for his schooling and arranged for him to have a commission to West Point. I put myself back in the narrative. I stop wasting time on tears. I live another 50 years. It's not enough. I interview every soldier who fought by your side. I try to make sense of your thousands of pages of writings. You really do write like you're running out of time. She's alive, we tell your story. She is buried in Trinity Church near you. When I needed her most, she was right on time. And I'm still not through. I ask myself, what would you do if you had more time? The Lord in his kindness.
At another point in her life, she worked with James Madison's wife, Dolly Madison, to raise money for a monument that would rise on the National Mall in tribute to Alexander's mentor and friend, George Washington. And almost until her death at age 92, Elizabeth Hamilton worked diligently to protect the integrity of her husband's life and legacy in the face of his old critics who continued to try to blacken his memory even after his death. Hamilton American Musical is playing at the Fox Theater until Sunday, June 10th. If you don't already have tickets, you can still buy them from a variety of sources, but as you can imagine, they're really expensive. But you can also download to your mobile phone the Hamilton app, which allows you to enter a daily lottery. If you're one of the lucky ones to win the drawing, you'll be eligible to buy two tickets for $10 apiece. Good luck. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Our senior producer is Jenny Amund. Our producer is Olivia Rheingold. Olivia and Jenny work together to edit this week's show. Our engineer is Tyler Morris. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for being with us. I look forward to seeing you next time for another Two-Way Street. Who tells your story?